Friends, this is Daily Power Parsha. Recording in progress. And it is great to study Torah with you guys once again on this beautiful day in Hashem's beautiful, on Hashem's beautiful earth. Today is Wednesday, January 19, 2022. And we are in the middle of the Torah portion of Yisro, Yitro, the Torah portion that speaks about the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. We talked about uh, Yisro, the man and the legend, the man, the myth, and the legend. We spoke about how Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, Yisro, joins the crowd, joins the crew. Um, after the exodus, he meets up with the Jewish people in the wilderness. He's so impressed. He's, uh, he's excited. He gives advice about judging the people, all that good stuff. And now we're in the conversation. Now we're in the dialogue. Now we're in the, uh, the narrative pertaining to the preparations for the Sinai experience, for the giving of the Torah at Sinai. So yesterday we read about how the Jews encamped by the Sinai desert, by the foot of the mountain. They arrived in the general vicinity of where the Torah will be given. They arrived there on the first day of the month of Sivan. The first day of the third month, Nisan, Iyar, Sivan. Sivan is that third month. That's when they arrive in, the, in Midbar Sinai, in the Sinai Desert, encamping opposite the mountain. And as we'll see, and as we've seen in the narrative, there's a conversation that goes between God and Moses, and then between Moses and the Jewish people. And the conversation is basically God saying to Moses, this is the plan, let the people know and get consent. And then Moses goes to the people and he tells the people what the plan is. And the people say yes. And then God says, okay, great. This is what you have to do to prepare. And then Moses says, this is what you got to do to prepare. The people say yes, and they prepare. So there's, it's, a back, it's back, back and forth. There's dialogue between God and Moses, then Moses and the people and what they do. Um, all in preparation for this incredible event. Speaking of preparation, from the moment of the Exodus, the people were counting. Every single day they were counting. They were counting up to Sinai. I think they had a tradition. I think they knew this, that it was going to be 50 days. 50 days. They counted 49 days. And the 50th day is the, was the giving of the Torah at Sinai, which we know as Shavuos, Shavuot. That's the holiday that we celebrate on an annual basis for this very purpose. Which, by the way, is part of why the Rebbe asks on last week's Torah portion about the jewelry. Right when the people and, and the gold, the gold and the gems, when the people were collecting the gold and the diamonds and the jewelry and the pearls and the amethyst. Um, speaking of amethyst, when they were when they were asking about all that stuff. Thank you, Donna. So when they were asked, when they were collecting all that at the sea, and Moses says, "Vayasa am," he has to move them forward. The question is asked. The Rebbe asked the question. If they were counting to Sinai, they knew where they had to go. They were anticipating. They were literally marking their calendars. So they got stuck at the, they got stuck at the sea. What? They got, they got jaded by, by the gelt. They got, they got uh, you know, their eyes were flashing money. What was going on? And there the Reb explains, and I think we alluded to it last week, that uh, it wasn't just about the money. You know, the, there's, a, there's a spark. Kabbalah calls it a spark. A spark of holiness, a spark of divinity that exists in every single element in existence. Now, some sparks are not accessible, which is why some things are forbidden, because it's such a, 
the lower a thing is, the higher the source of the spark. That's the way it works. The higher it is, the lower it falls. So some things have such a lofty spark and such a low um, manifestation that we're not meant to engage, we're meant to disengage. So some things the Torah tells us, when you see it, just keep on walking. Keep on walking by, don't engage, don't eat it, don't touch it, don't look at it, don't engage in it, just let it go, it's not for you. And that's how we deal with it, by, by abstaining from it. Something, for some things, the purpose is realized by abstention. But most things, at least kosher things, right? Things that are permissible. The things that are permissible, the way we elevate is by engagement. Money is permissible. Gold is permissible. Diamonds are permissible. Bitcoin, a mitzvah. Kidding. Bitcoin are also permissible. All these things are permissible. So what, so what the, the message here is, or what the calling is, is to take the resources, to take, whether it's money directly or resources that have a monetary value, utilize them for a higher purpose, which is exactly what the Jewish people were trying to do by the, by the, by the sea. They wanted to collect as many sparks as possible to then leverage, to then utilize for a higher purpose. And of course, at some point Moses says, Genukshain, it's enough. It's enough. You got enough. They got too much. They had extra money to burn and they burned it on a golden calf. But that's for another week. That's for another time. So getting back to our narrative, the Jews are preparing. Yes. Talking about gemstones. So I have a, a nice rock, a, a petrified wood. And I was going to bring it Sunday for you for, you know, for Tubish uh, Vah. I'll bring it next time. Yeah. Nice. So petrified wood. Actually, it's a gemstone, so it comes from you know the roots below the earth. It's very interesting. That is it's interesting. Exciting, and it's a gemstone. Nice. I'd love to see it. I mean, I'm not scared. I'm not petrified of the petrified wood. I, that was easy. I mean, that's like really low hanging fruit. Okay. All right. So now that takes us to where we are today. So everything has a spark. Everything has a purpose, and. That's why they were running after it. But getting back to the to the bigger picture item here, the Jews were counting. They were counting up to Sinai. They were excited about it. They were anticipating it. And as the week begins, the week the the week countdown, right? There's like you know seven weeks, six weeks, five, four, three, two, one. As the week of the the revelation at Sinai is 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 unfolding, there's a lot of action. It's a lot of activity. So let me share my screen and let's jump back into the narrative. Right here, Parshas Yisro, or Yitro. We did reading four yesterday. We're going to do reading five. We're a little ahead of the game, but we're ahead of the game for the big picture item so that we can do the Haftorah by the end of the week. All right. Um, yesterday we read about God telling Moses to tell the women and then the men, first women and the men, um, how if you receive, if you accept the Torah and keep the commandments and we, we create this covenant together, you're going to be a treasure out of all peoples. You will be a kingdom of princes and a holy nation. Certainly a very unique relationship that God has with the Jewish people vis-a-vis -vis Torah, which is a very unique responsibility. And that's kind of where we ended it off yesterday. Now, we haven't read about the response of the people. That's all God telling Moses what to tell the people. What did the people say about this? Are they in? Are they out? Do they have questions? Here we go. 
Exodus 19, verse 7, Moses came and summoned the elders of Israel. The elders. Always the elders first. And placed before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. He gave them the scoop. This is what God says. This is what God wants. This is the offer. This is the deal. What do you think? And all the people, look at this. And all the people replied in unison and said, First of all, Jews replying in unison, already a miracle. Yeah? Many Jews, one opinion, unheard of. And yet, here we go. And they all answered together, and they said the following, all that the, all that the Lord has spoken, we shall do. In the Hebrew, it's a beautiful phrase. The phrase is nasa. Now, some of you may be familiar with the, with the phrase nasa venishma. Nasa venishma. Hold on one second. Let me mute that. Nasa venishma, which means we will hear and we will do. But that's not the way it's reported here. Here, at least the way it's initially, that's the next week's Torah portion of Mishpatim. In this week's Torah portion, it, it records the Jewish response to the offer of the Torah at, uh, by God as Nasa. Yes, we're in. We'll take it. Yes. And Mo, that's what they said to Moses. And Moses took the words of the people back to the Lord. So again, I told you about the communication. God to Moses, Moses to the people, the people to Moses, Moses back to God. It's coming down, it's going back up. These are how the conversations are going. Moses is the go-between. Moses is getting the information and passing back the information. Nasa. You have to understand the power of this word Nasa. Nasa means we shall do. We will do. We are in. Put me down for it. God says, do you want the tablets? And the Jews said, how much do they cost? And God said, they're free. And the Jews said, we'll take two. I'm kidding. God, the people said, Nasa, we are in. This stands in stark contrast to the way it unfolded with every other nation. According to our tradition, God offered the Torah to others. And every time he offered the Torah, the others said, what does it say in it? God says, you want the Torah? And they said, well, what does it say? Can't answer yes or no until we know what it is. What is Torah? What does it say? And God says, well, it says, do not kill. And some people said, we don't like that. And then God said to others, it says, do not steal. Oh, uh, well, they didn't like that, etc. So all of the other peoples, all the other nations were offered the Torah on some level and refused. Why? Because, you know, who wants to be bound by this, you know, set of laws? This divine set of laws. Who needs it? How's it going to help me? You can tell me, what, you're, you're pitching something to me. What's the offer? The offer is, you can get to, 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 to behave according to my rules. Now, I think I'll opt out of that. I'd rather not. I'd rather just be my own person. So, everyone else refuses. The Jews say, NASA, we're in. And this is powerful because what it means is it's about a relationship. They're saying to God, we said to God, it's not about what it says. It's irrespective of what the Torah says. If you are offering it, then we know it's good. Someone you love, right? If it's someone you love and it's someone you trust and they ask you, they say, hey, I got something for you. Do you want it? The answer is yes, because you love them and you trust them. If you don't love them, if you don't trust them, then you're suspicious. What does it say? Well, how's it good for me? But it's someone you trust, someone you love. Nasa, we're in. This is a statement not just of obedience. 
It's not just a statement of, you know, Kabbalah's O, which is like obedience and we'll follow and we're robots and, you know, we, we're, we'll be subservient. It's not a, this is not surrender. This is not a story of surrender as much as it is a story of love and trust. It's a story of a people who put their faith, their trust, and their love in God. And God says, I got something for you. And they said, yes. God says, I'm taking you on vacation. Yeah, you want to go? Yes. Where? Doesn't matter. You want to go with me? I trust you. I love you and I trust you. This, this is what's going on over here. Okay, verse number nine. And the Lord said to Moses. So after hearing this, we got the thumbs up from the people. Let's proceed. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in the thickness of the cloud, in order that the people hear when I speak to you. Ah, take a look. Typically, the conversations, I know I'm right in the middle of a verse, but let me, let me, let's, let's do this this way. Let's break this down. Typically, the communication between God and Moses happens in private. It happens between God and Moses, and no one is eavesdropping because they can't, because it's a direct communication, whatever that sounds like. Do you want to picture an earpiece? Picture an earpiece. Picture wired into Moses' consciousness. Whatever it is, that's how Moses hears it. It's not a loud voice that Moses somehow, whatever. Or you want to picture something else? Picture something else. Picture radio waves right around you at this point, right in, in your space, wherever you are. You, there are radio waves and television waves for that matter. There are radio waves, frequencies of sound right around you. But you don't hear it. You don't hear it until you have an instrument called a radio that has a tuner that can tune into the frequency and translate it into audible sound. And then you hear talk radio, sports talk, uh, you know, a, a Spanish news channel. You could hear FM. You could hear music. To pop music, you could hear, you know, rock and country and all that good stuff. All of that is around you, but you, you but, but the human body, the human body is not a tuner to music, right? You need a radio. If someone's a tuner, that would be very interesting. Yeah, if somebody could play the radio without a radio, that would be a talent. That would definitely get some attention. You need a tuner. You need a radio. You got to tune in. So is it, so perhaps, and I'm not saying this is how it works, but if you want to be able to kind of wrap your head around it, how does God communicate with Moses? Moses is able to tune into the frequency where God is communicating, but no one else is at that frequency. No one else is tuning in. No one else has the radio. No one has the hardware or the software. No one is able to hear that sound. God says in verse 9, Behold, I'm coming to you in the thickness of the cloud, in order that the people hear when I speak to you. In other words, at the sign I experience in a few days, it's going to be different. Instead of me speaking with you, communicating with you on a personal level, exclusive to everyone else, this is going to be an, an, an inclusive experience where everybody is able to hear. The, the, the goal here is that the people should hear when I speak to you. And by doing so, not only are the people going to hear directly from God, but this is also going to grant once and for all and for all time, this will grant absolute validity to the messages of Moses. And they will also believe in you forever, God says, 
when they are able to get a snapshot of our communications, then they're going to know what it sounds like and that it is legit. Does that make sense? They're going to have an experience where they hear our conversations. I'm coming to you in the thickness of the cloud. In other words, in an obvious way where everyone can... In order that the people hear when I speak to you, I'll still speak to you, but they're going to hear. And they'll believe in you forever. And Moses relayed the words of the people to the Lord. Now, hold on. That doesn't make sense, that verse. It should say, and Moses relayed the words of God to the people. What does it mean, relayed the words of the people to the Lord? Okay, so here's where Rashi kind of explains that there's pieces of the narrative that are a little bit missing. Let's, let's talk about Rashi for a second. Namely, what Moses reports back to God is a response to the statement, I have heard from them, the Israelites. Oh, sorry, namely, response to the statement. I have heard from the Israelites that they want to hear directly from you. They maintain that there is no comparison between one who hears a message from the mouth of the messenger and one who hears it from the mouth of the king himself. They say, We want to see our king. That's what, God, that's what the people said to Moses, and Moses relays to God. And so therefore, there's going to be a little bit of a tweak here. Instead of God speaking to Moses and the people overhearing, the people are saying, we want God to speak directly to us. Fine. Also okay. Right? So that's what it means. God says to Moses, I'll speak with you, and the people are going to hear, and they're going to believe in you. But the people, but Moses relays the message, eh, the people would like to hear directly from you. Direct, address them in first person, which is what happens, by the way, with the Ten Commandments. God speaking directly to all of us. Yeah, Ray, jump in. But you got to unmute. You got to unmute. I thought that um, that the people couldn't stand to hear the voice. Didn't some of them die? But I know they stand to hear it. Yep. Right? Well, you know, you know the expression. Be careful what you ask for. This is before they asked. They wanted to hear directly, not through Moses. They didn't want to overhear God speaking to Moses and then know that it's true. They wanted to hear directly from God. Well, God says, okay. With the first commandment, they were blown away. Using my radio analogy, imagine the sound is so powerful, it blows the speakers. Well, there you go. There you go. So, yeah, it says, Parcha Nishmasen. Their souls flew out of their bodies with, every, with each of the commandments, according to some traditions. For each of the commandments, according to another tradition, it was just the first two. And, yeah, the first two, and, and with each one, and they're at... After their souls departed, God resuscitated, revived, not resurrected, so to speak. Put the souls back in. But after a few of these, I mean, how much can a person uh, handle of this? It's like, okay, you know, fool me once, shame on me, but not fool. But like, okay, once, twice, all right, we're done, we're out, we got it. All right, message made, point made, message delivered, we got it. It's big, it's a big experience. But to, to, to reconcile the two statements, yes, that's what happened in practice. But initially, a few days before, this is what the people requested. That's, that's what they got, what they wanted. But they got, they got more than they bargained for, which is, uh, which is definitely clear from the narrative. All right, so here we go. So now that the people are asking to hear directly from God, they want to not just be the eavesdroppers. They don't just want to be the ones to hear, to overhear a conversation with God and Moses. But they want to get direct communication. Okay, 
You want to be a prophet? You want to be a direct communicator? All right, now you need some preparations. Now, if you want to be in direct contact, now there's hachana. Now there's preparation that needs to happen. You can't just step in. You can't just roll in from bed and be like, hey, God, ready to go. I got my ears open. I'm, I got my listening, you know, my listening hat on. It's not how it works. You want to connect with God on that intimate level? You got to be ready. So the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, verse 10, and prepare them today and tomorrow. Prepare them today and tomorrow. Preparation. Preparation, spiritual preparation. And they shall wash their garments. We're going to talk about Rashi in a minute, but let's get a little bit, a little bit of this. And they shall be prepared for the third day. So two days of prep, and on the third day, that's when the magic is going to happen. For on the third day, the Lord will descend before the eyes of all the people upon Mount Sinai. You want it? You want, you want direct revelation, direct communication? You got it. Two days of prep. On the third day, this is all going to go down. And you shall set boundaries for the people around, around the mountain, around Mount Sinai. Because as direct as it is, you still don't want, to, don't want to get too close. It's a splash zone, so to speak. Saying, beware of ascending the mountain or touching its edge. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Don't get too close, even as you're having a direct connection. No hand shall touch it. For he shall be stoned or cast down. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long, drawn-out blast, they may ascend the mountain. The ram's horn was sounded, a chauffeur. A chauffeur blast was sounded to indicate, to indicate, sorry. A chauffeur blast shall be sounded to indicate that the experience is over and the mountain is once again passable. But whilst... Just to sound British now. Whilst the revelation of Sinai is, is rolling on, do not, get, do not touch the mountain, climb the mountain, do not get too close to the mountain. Let's pause for a moment. Let's look at some Rashis. We did one before, but let's go through al Hasid. Let's go through in order. Um, <laughs> look at this. Did Moses really have to bring back to God an answer? Love this question. If God knows everything, if. Ha, God knows everything, so why does Moses need to tell God what the people said? Oh, the people are in. God's like, I knew that before you did. <laughs> what are you doing? No, but it's etiquette. Rather, the text comes to teach you etiquette from Moses. Etiquette. Manners. Being a mensch. He did not say, since he who sent me knows, I do not have to reply. He didn't say that. He didn't say, God knows, I don't have to go back. No, somebody sent you on a, on a, on a mission, sent you with a, with a message to get a reply. You should report back. It's only the right thing. All right, we did Rashi. We did this one that I wanted to do for, the, for verse 9. Let's continue verse 10. Rashi says, um, as I said before in the narrative, I gave you this running commentary. If it's true that the people compel me to speak with them, then go to the people and tell them about the preparation. In other words, if they really want, look, there's two options, two options. Either God says, two options. Either I speak with you, Moses, and the people over here, 
Okay, let's just be, let's, let's, at the risk of oversimplifying it, let's simplify it. Three gedarim, three levels. Three levels of communication. Level one, earpiece. Let's just, just work with me here. Bluetooth, right, from the cloud, right, the cloud, from God, divine Bluetooth, God to Moses, only Moses hears, that's level one, done. That's typically how the communication went down. Level two, imagine, imagine, God pulls Moses into the office, and in a booming divine voice says, here's what I want you to do, here's what I want you to tell your team, people. And everyone's gathered outside the room listening in. Because you can listen in. Because God's voice is pretty loud, so you can listen in. Level three, God speaks directly to the people. So God suggested level two. The people wanted level three. So God says, you want level three? Fine. But you got to do some prep. That's where we're up to. If you want me to speak directly to you, then tell them they have to prepare. Prepare them, to, uh, prepare them that they should prepare themselves today and, to tomorrow, and today and tomorrow. Let's continue. Oh, here we go. They shall be prepared, Rashi says, separated from women. What is separated from women? What does that mean? It means no physical intimacy for three days. What's wrong with physical intimacy? Nothing is wrong with physical intimacy. But physical intimacy is not conducive necessarily to spiritually attuning oneself to that communion with God. Get yourself ready for that date, and don't worry about other dates. You have other dates next week. Right now, it's all about God. So that's the first step of preparation. Um, listen to this. Before the eyes of all the people, the Mechilta says, the Medra says, this teaches us that there were no blind persons among them, for they were all cured. At Sinai, all disability was cured. Now, was it cured permanently or temporarily for Sinai? That itself is for under, needs further elaboration. But at that moment of Sinai, as it says, before the eyes of other people, it means it's indicative of, the, of, of, of what we know by tradition, that disabilities were healed at the giving of the Torah experience at Mount Sinai. By the way, speaking of disability, tonight's class is an unbelievable class. The Rebbe's perspective on people with disabilities vis-a-vis mitzvah observant, asking specifically the question if someone, God forbid, does not have arms and cannot do tefillin, so how does that work? Are they missing the mitzvah? Are they, is it counted as if they can't, like, what's, what, what does that mean? And of course, other examples of this, um, using kind of this Torah portion and what we just read as a launching pad to have this conversation about uh, disability in Judaism. Very, very important conversation. As, you, as you, I think you all know, I wrote a book on inclusion, so it's certainly a topic that I feel is uh, very important, and it's in tonight's Torah Studies class 7.30. Make sure you are there, in person or online. Okay, a little commercial break. Now back to our action. Okay, verse 12. Boundaries. Boundaries around the mountain. By the way, boundaries are always good. Seriously, boundaries? You know what they say about fences? Good fences make for good neighbors. Good fences make for good neighbors. 
But it's good fences are good for always. You always need boundaries. Relationships, every relationship needs boundaries, healthy boundaries. Right? Not harsh boundaries. I'm not talking about harsh right now, but healthy boundaries. Good. Healthy boundaries here also. It's good to get close to God. It's good to not get too close to God. It's all, all true. Right? God is great. <laughs> Obviously. It's great, to get, it's great to be connected with God. It's great to hear from God. Sure. Don't touch the mountain. It's good to have boundaries. Here we go. You shall set boundaries. Rashi says set boundaries for them as a sign that they should not come nearer to the mountain than the boundary. I mean, that's literally what a boundary is. But basically tape off the mountain not to get too close. What does the boundary say? The boundary says to them, beware of going up from here on. And you shall warn them about it. Put up a sign. Put up tape. I'm adding tape. It doesn't say tape. And let them know. Make sure you instruct them also about not going on the mountain. Not even touching its edge. Even the edge of the mountain do not touch. Um, here we go. The chauffeur blast. Okay? I mentioned this before, but let's do it inside. When the ram's horn sounds a long, drawn-out blast, we call that a takia. Maybe a takia gadola. A long, drawn-out blast. This is the sign of the Shekhinah's withdrawal and, and the cessation of the voice of God. How do you know that the show is over? So in a movie, theater, lahavdil, the lights go on. And this, the credits play. Right? And, and you know the show's over. At Sinai, again, lahavdil, at Sinai, there was a shofar blast. Long, drawn-out blast of the shofar. As soon as the Shekhinah withdraws, as soon as God, you know goes on his merry way, they are permitted to ascend the mountain. <coughs> and thus, the memorabilia begins. Genuine rock from Mount Sinai was there at the revelation of Sinai, starting bid 180, coming soon to an eBay auction near you. Maybe Sotheby's. Maybe. Next. The ram's horn. The ram's horn. Which ram's horn? Um, that, that is the, a chauffeur of a ram. For in Arabia, oh, so the Hebrew word is yovel. Hi, yovel. Yovel is like jubilee year. 50 years. 50 year jubilee. How's a yovel a chauffeur of a, ram, a ram's horn? Rashi explains. For in Arabia, what was, what's famous about Arabia? The Arabian Nights? Arabian Nights? They're Knights of Arabia? Is this a thing? Is that a book? Is that a diner? What are we talking about here? Anyway, in Arabia, they call a ram Yuvla. Yuvla. Yovel, Yuvla. And this chauffeur was, which chauffeur did they use? Was from Isaac's ram, the ram that Abraham sacrificed instead of Isaac. This is an ancient ram. Do you guys see, see what's going on here? Remember when Abraham brought his son Isaac to bind him up on the altar as a sacrifice and God said, actually, don't touch him. Bring him up and now take him down. He's good to go. And then Abraham's like, okay, but am I doing a sacrifice? And right then there was a ram that had its horn stuck in the thicket and then Abraham sacrifices the ram and gives it, brings it an offering to God. Well, okay, well now you know and now I reminded you, but the horn, one of the horns from that chauffeur, sorry, let me try again. One of the horns from that ram was made into a chauffeur, and that was the chauffeur that they used at Mount Sinai. How cool is that memorabilia? Can you imagine? Like OG horn from Isaac's ram, 
super cool. That is super cool. Okay, so now, one second. Rabbi? Yes. I'm thinking of, of including my, my shofar that I got from Habaritan um, on my table at the Atlanta Jewish Life Festival because, you know, my jewelry is themed on these, on these lessons. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. So far, so good. <laughs> can't, can't hold back on that one. Yeah, definitely hands-on Judaica right there. Um, but is it an original Isaac Ram? That's the question. Is it an original Isaac's Ram? Pro I think so. Probably, I'm going to say probably not. I'm kidding. All right, so let's continue verse 14. So all of that was gone to Moses regarding prep for a few days. So Moses descended from the mountain to the people. He's got to deliver the message. And he prepared the people and they washed their garments. Okay. He said to the people, be ready for three days. Be ready for three days means get yourself ready for what's going to happen in three days. And by doing prep over the next three days. Do and first message here is, as God told him, do not go near a woman. Now, do not go near a woman sounds a little bit a little bit dramatic. It just means no intimacy. It came to pass on the third day when it was morning. Oh, wow. We're, uh, we're moving on in the narrative here. This is it. We're, we're ready to go. It was that third day after the three days of prep that there were thunderclaps and lightning flashes and a thick cloud was upon the mountain and a very powerful blast of the chauffeur, of a chauffeur. That's not the after-party chauffeur that signals... All clear. This is the pregame chauffeur. So many chauffeurs here. So, so many things. So there was a powerful blast of the chauffeur, and the entire nation that was in the camp shuddered. Vayecharad. Shudder means like, you know, out of awe and fear and trepidation almost. It's like, this is a big deal. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. This is day three. It's getting real. It's getting really real. This is like uh, a very awe. Inspiring or awe-filled moment. Moses brought the people out toward God from the camp. By the way, this is after he couldn't get them up in the morning. You know the story. Yeah, that's why we stay up on Shavuos all night. He couldn't get them up. They were sleeping in. They forgot to set their alarms. It was like, guys, let's go. Hey, let's go. So Moses brings the people out toward God from the camp. And they stood at the bottom of the mountain. They stood at the foot of the mountain, again, not touching the mountain, not getting too close, but that's where they stood. According to a deeper interpretation, according to the Talmud and the Medrash, they stood underneath the mountain. Betachtis could mean at the, at the bottom or it could mean underneath. God lifted the mountain, Mount Sinai, over their heads and said, will you take the Torah? Will you accept it? If, if so, great. If not, boom, I drop this mountain on your heads. Talk about choice, hey? Right? Talk about choice. Here's your choice. Accept the Torah or you're, you're a goner. That's what the Talmud says. Medrash says. So, obviously the question is, what does that even mean? Maybe Rashi brings this as well. Let's see if Rashi brings this so that we can just pin it in a very practical way. Yeah. The Medrashic interpretation that the mountain was uprooted from its place and turned over them like a vat hanging over their heads. The Talmud, Tractate Shabbat. So the question is, where's choice? So I'll share with you what the Hasidic interpretation is. 
doesn't mean that God literally took the mountain and held it over their heads. It means that there was so much love. Love is likened to a mountain. Why is love likened to a mountain? Because like a mountain is out of the landscape, a flat landscape, a mountain soars. Love. You know, you're feeling what you're feeling and then love, your heart soars with love. It, it bursts with love. Love is like a mountain. Love is a big emotion, like a mountain that sticks up big and proud. Love is big. God holding the mountain over their heads means that God was showering the most incredible love upon them at that moment. Which is why it's like it's coerced. Right? The, the Talmud is saying they were forced because he held it over their heads. They're still forced. Someone loves you so much. Someone does so much for you. If someone promises you the moon and then say, so, will you marry me? What are you going to say? No. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. Why is it hard? Because there's so much, so much love. It's hard to turn down the love. That's the deeper understanding of the mountain. I'm not saying it didn't happen physically. I'm just saying that the way Chassidus understands it and Kabbalah is that it's a divine expression of love that was hanging over their heads and that clouded their decision-making. In other words, yes, they said yes to the Torah, but it's, they said yes anyway. A few days, a few days prior, they'd said, they had already said yes. This was another check-in, but it wasn't, what could they say at this point? No. I mean, it's like they were already so into it. So that's why. Was this, yeah. was, was, so a few days ago, was that the, you know, like the Hakma Bean? I don't know. That was the intellectual acceptance, and today is the emotional acceptance? Kind of. Yeah, they said, we're in. Even though then I said it's also like love and, faith, love and trust. It's also that element. I think we're just highlighting the fact that at the end of the day, when someone does so much for you, loves you so much, tells you how much they love you, it's normal and natural to reciprocate, to feel a reciprocal love. But then the question is, do you love irrespective of their love? In other words, if they didn't do anything for you, if they didn't say anything to you, if they didn't shine the love, their love towards you, could you still love them? Which is why the Talmud says, the first time in history, we, f we found out if the Jews really love God is with the story of Purim. Because then God was not showing any love and God was not showing any kindness and God was not showing saying Purim before the miracle, before the salvation. When things were bad, oh, you're a Jew? Done. You're a goner. God forbid. Slated for extermination. How do you love me now? In other words, it's easy to... It's a very simple point, but I think very powerful. It's easy to love someone when they're doing so much for you. What happens when they're not doing anything for you? Do you still love them? That's the question. Because that means that it's not that you love how you feel, but you love them, even if they don't make you feel good right now. That's a deeper question of what love is. Is there love even in a situation where you don't have the demonstrable love from the other party? It's like, God forbid, right? If, if a loved one needs to be taken care of, 
They're not giving you anything. Now it's costing you something. I don't mean that uh, in a negative way. I don't mean that in a financial way only. It's now, you're, it now requires you to give. And you're not getting. You're not getting. You're giving. Do you still love? The deepest expression of love is when it's not about what you're getting out of it, but it's about giving. I'm saying something fairly basic that we've talked about before, but there's two modalities of love. Love is, I love what I'm getting, so then you're really loving self. You're loving your feelings of getting, or you're loving the other. Loving the other is the other. So that's why the Talmud says, Mikan that the Sinai experience has a little bit, it's not the full experience. At Sinai, we're, we, we were all in at Sinai, but we were getting a lot. We were getting a lot of love, getting a lot of promises. Uh, you'll be a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. That feels good to hear. Feels good to hear. Feels good to get a ring. Feels good to get the Torah. Feels good. So we said yes. Did we really say yes? You know when we really said yes? Purim. Because a Purim, we could have said, you know what? This is over. This is, I'm, I'm out. This is crazy. I'm out. This is not, this doesn't feel good. I'm out. We stuck through it. And then it got good again. Well, and then it got not good again. And yeah, you know, it's, it's been a rough few thousand years. But we're still in. And we're still in it. Not because of what we get out of it. I think. We're in it because we know it's real. We know it's true. And we also get out of it. We also get something out of it. That's a good thing. But it's not limited to that. This comes back to a very basic idea. Do we only study Torah, do a mitzvah? Are we only kind to a loved one when we're in the mood? Or we, all, or we do it because, because we do it. That's the difference. Are we doing it because what we get out of it? Because we feel, because are we serving our emotions? I mean, that's what you said, Donna, right? Are we doing it because we're serving ourselves and our feelings? Or are we doing it because we're doing it for the other? That's the question. So, anyway, that's a bit about the, 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 the mountain over their heads. Yeah, Joy. Okay, and Rashi, on the, um, before it talks about the mountain lifting, it's, it talks like God is coming like a bridegroom from the mountain. So couldn't the lifting of the mountain be like the chuppah and the, and the children of Israel came like the bride? I love it. Yes. I love it. Yes. It could be like the canopy over the... Yes. That works. I like that visual. It says, it says that Sinai was like the, the day of the wedding. King Solomon writes, The day of, of his wedding. In Song of Songs, it talks about the you know, wedding days and, and all that stuff. And, and according to our sages, that's a reference. It's a euphemism for Sinai. It's a wedding. It says that the ketubah... Right, the marriage contract was the Torah. That's like the that's the document. Yeah, Donna. I mean, even before Joy, you know, mentioned the analogy, which is a good one. I was thinking, you know, the comparison to to a real world relationship is difficult because people change out of the blue, so you don't really know what's what all the time. So you have right. to have some kind of a a distance. And then with the marriage analogy, I mean, we do divorce in the in our lives, but we don't divorce God, hopefully. Right. Well, I mean, that would be, yeah, that would be the question, right? Are we sticking, sticking with God, you know, through thick and thin? And, you know, we know the money says it. In God we trust. 
Sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's a little, a little bit harder. It requires a little bit more faith and trust to, uh, to muster through. Actually, now that we're in Rashi, let's, um, let's look at some Rashis. Oh, this is great. Look at this one. Look at this one. It says, Moses descended from the mountains of the people. So Rashi says, this teaches us that Moses did not turn to his own affairs, but went directly from the mountain to the people. In this entire multi-day experience of back and forth and conversations and giving the message, Moses did not take a break and say, I want to go home and have a barbecue. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to go home, grab a beer, relax, watch some TV, check out some TikTok, and then, um, and then I'm going to go to the people. Note, Moses went straight from God to the people, straight from the people back to God. That was it. He had a job. He was focused. He was making the deal. He did not stop until it was done. Um, interesting. There's an interesting Rashi here that gets into some... Uh, details about uh, intimacy and why three days and all that stuff. So I'm not going to read it inside, but you can, you can read it and, uh, and analyze it on your own. Okay, let's continue. Um, take a look at this. When it was morning, right? God, when it was morning, the Torah says on the third day, it was morning, thunderclaps, lightning flashes. Okay, Rashi says, this teaches us, that God preceded, preceded them on Mount Sinai, which is unconventional for a flesh and blood person to do, i.e. having the teacher wait for the pupil. With all my, con- I'll confess to this myself, you know, I, you know, most of the time I'm logging on, you guys are already here. I, okay, maybe it shouldn't be like that, but uh, although in-person classes, yeah, I'm usually, it uh, depends on the class. Okay, I don't know why I'm making this about me, it's not about me, but the point is that God showed up to Mount Sinai before the people did. And so we find in Ezekiel, arise, go out to the plain. So I arose and went out to the plain, and behold, there the glory of God was standing. So Ezekiel goes out to the plain, and God is already there. God waits for us. That's a beautiful message in and of itself. As much as we're looking for God, God's like, did you find me? Did you find me yet? Are you, are you showing up? I'm, I'm waiting, right? That's how God is, uh, is, is, is relating to us. Toward God, that's the Shekinah came out to God like a bridegroom, God to a bride. This is the meaning of what is stated. The Lord came from Sinai. It does not say came to Sinai. From Sinai, like a chassan going out to greet the kala, like the bridegroom, standing under the chuppah, when the kala, when the bride approaches, the custom is the bridegroom takes a few steps toward the bride to welcome her approach. Just, I feel like I said that a little bit too quickly. Let me just explain. At a Jewish, traditional Jewish wedding, till this day, this is how it's done. The chassan, the chatan, the, the groom, the, right? He goes to the chuppah first, stands under the chuppah, like, I don't know, like whatever. He stands, then the kala, then the bride comes. There's a procession, whatever it is, but then at some point the bride arrives. When the bride is making her way, as she kind of ent- approaches the room or approaches the space, the custom is that the groom, who's under the chuppah, takes a few steps toward her, and as she's walking. So that's kind of the thing. He, she approaches him. He approaches her. That's kind of what Rashi is saying. Let's get back inside. Um, we're up to verse 18 and 19. Okay, so let's read it inside. And then maybe we could take a look, quick look at Rashi's. And then we'll close it out. Let's hide Rashi. 
verse 18. And the entire Mount Sinai smoked because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of the kiln and the entire mountain quaked violently. Man, that mountain was hopping. That thing was shaking. It was smoking. There was fire. The mountain was lit. That mountain was quite the sight. Verse 19, the sound of the shofar grew increasingly stronger. This is the pregame shofar. Moses would speak and God would answer him with a voice. Let's go at Rashi. Last two verses, last two Rashis, last few Rashis. Um, this is a grammatical one, which we're going to skip. Um, okay, the, uh, the kiln is used for the baking of lime. I could think that it means that Mount Sinai smoked like the kiln and no more, just like a kiln. Therefore, to clarify, the scripture states the mountain was blazing up with fire, blazing with fire up to the, he- up to the heart of the heaven meaning that the fire was far greater than, than in a lime kiln. So why then does the Torah say kiln? In order to explain to the human ear what is able to hear. I need to give the reader a picture that can be imagined. So what are you going to say? There's a tremendous amount of fire and smoke. How are you going to explain that? So they use a kiln. Torah uses a kiln, but bigger. A kiln on steroids. Um, yeah, interesting. Rashi now says that this is the same reason for anthropomorphisms. Similar to this is... A description in reference to God. He shall roar like a lion. He shall, God shall roar like a lion. So, who but him gave strength to the lion? Yet the scripture, so he roars only like a lion. Yet scripture compares him to a lion. Why? We describe him and compare him to, the, to his creatures in order to explain to the human what the ear is able to hear. So, if you wanted to speak about God's might, so we're going to use a lion. Although God is bigger than a lion and stronger than a lion, it's not, God is not a lion. We're using imagery that we can process. It says also, and its sound, the voice of God, was like the sound of abundant waters, like a rushing waters. Who gave what? Now, who gave the water a sound but he? Yet you describe him and compare him to his creatures. Uh, yet you describe him and compare him to his creatures in order to explain to the human what the ear is able to hear. Okay, we got the point. Uh, final verse, final Rashi's. The sound of the shofar grew increasingly stronger. It is customary for mortals that the longer one blows notes, long notes on a ram's horn, on a horn, the weaker and fainter its sound becomes. Now imagine, it's Kiyagadola, when you blast the shofar, the longer it goes, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, the it's going to taper off. However, here it constantly grew stronger. God's shofar blast grew stronger. Now why at the beginning was this so weak sound? In order that their ears hear what they were able to hear and not shock them suddenly. God wanted to kind of ease them into the divine shofar blast, so it went slowly. Slowly increasing in volume and in uh, intensity. Moses would speak. When Moses would speak and make the Decalogue heard, Decalogue is uh, Ten Commandments to Israel, for they heard from the mouth of God, only I am and you shall not have only the first two commandments, according to the Talmud, Makkah 24a. The Holy One, blessed be he, would assist him, Moses, by giving him the strength so that his voice would be strong and audible. Would answer him with a voice, means that he would answer him concerning the voice and not with a voice. That they will answer with fire, Concerning the fire. Yeah. Okay, let's leave that last Rashi aside for a second. There's a little bit of nuance there that I, I don't want to pick up on. But very, uh, very powerfully, when Moses would speak, let 
Moses spoke, it seems like it, the, the people heard the, the rest of the Ten Commandments through Moses, at Moses acting kind of as a go-between and not directly from God. Those were the first two commandments. And that, as we said before, kind of blew the speakers out and the souls left and then they had to be put back together again. Okay, so here we have the, read, the, the reading that we read today. That, that wraps it up. The message, the overarching theme that I want to share, my takeaway is as follows. Anything big requires preparation. This is going to be a, a, a general comment. If it's big, yeah, we can speak about love and trust and values and relationships and, and, and mountains overheads and doing it for the real reason and not for what you get out of it. We spoke about all those things. I'm giving you a general overview, general thing, general thought. If you want something to be meaningful and if something is meaningful, you got to prepare for it. You can't just step in and, and expect to have an experience. This is true in everything. It's true in prayer. You expect to, from a cold start, open up a book, read words in Hebrew, and that it should mean something? How's that going to work? Come on. Let's be, let's be honest. Let's be real. How's that going to happen? You're not in the mood. I'm saying you. I don't mean anyone here specifically. You're not in the mood. You're not ready for it. Where's your head? You're still thinking about work. You're thinking about carpool. You're thinking about shopping. You're thinking about breakfast. Where's your head? Where's your heart? Where are you? It's not going to work. You got to get ready for it. You got to prepare doesn't have to be an hour. It could be 10 minutes. A little study, a little meditation. The point here is don't expect the magic to happen just like that. It's got to take prep. Even comedy. Even comedy. La Havdil, just speaking about comedy, right? There's an art in stand-up. There's an absolute art, art in how to warm up the crowd. Not only have a warm-up guy you know, work the crowd. That is true. You do have that. But there's also, you got to, in a set, you got to get a warm up the crowd. You got to start off and, and pace it right and get the crowd going to the point that they're eating out of your hands. And everything you say is suddenly funny. Even though, you know, you isolate the transcript, there's nothing funny about it. Suddenly, everyone's laughing. You got it. You got the room. It's an experience. It's a shared experience. There's an intimacy there. It happens through preparation. In life, if we want to have experiences, think about the preparation. Whether in relationships, this is certainly true. Whether it's in our spiritual relationship, it's certainly true. You want to have an experience, you got to lay, you got to lay the groundwork. You got you to you do, the, do the work to get it set. Okay, thank you for joining me today for Daily Power Parsha. It's great to see you all. Um, tonight, Judaism inclusive Judaism, mitzvahs for all. That's going to be the topic, 7.30 p.m., live on Zoom, live in person with babka and cookies. So join us in person for babka and cookies and Torah study, if you can make it. All right. Have a great day. Bye, guys. See you soon. See you later.